0: Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnit.org. Hey, we are supremely blessed this morning. One of my favorite speakers in the whole world uh, is here to bring uh, the message the Holy Spirit has for HCF today. Uh, I've known Darren uh, for about 15 years. Uh, He came out to Alaska a lot and ministered. Um, he recently, in the past couple of years, uh, heard the calling of the Holy Spirit to move to Texas, so uh, he is uh, wise and very, very wise, uh, and so we have a, a True Blue Texan now in our midst bringing the word today, so I want you all to welcome up Darren Lindley as he comes up to minister today, and uh, the Holy Spirit's given him a word, and so go for it, my brother. Awesome, man. I love you, brother. I love you. It is so wonderful to be here at HCF. I tell you what. I love the presence of Jesus. It's, it's just so good. It's so rich. And I've come to tell you something. He loves you with an everlasting love. And his love doesn't shift and it doesn't fade. His love, it endures forever. Did you know that? His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever and we could say it uh, quite a few more times and still not say it as much as the psalms does right his love it says 26 times in a row his love endures forever And I am so happy to come to preach Jesus to you and tell you that he loves you and he's come to sustain you and he's come to give you life and that more abundantly. That's who he is. My name's Darren Lindley and I am so happy to be here. And uh, I have been traveling and speaking for a long time since I was a pup and uh, uh, traveled all over the United States. My claim to fame is I've been to Alaska 177 times. Yeah, yeah more than about anybody. And uh, um, I I love Alaska and really enjoy that. I'm from Oregon, however, I am a refugee. And uh, I left the burning embers of Portland behind and uh, came down here to the land of the free and the home of the brave. But I want you to know I'm not like a, a usurper or anything, okay? I want you to know something. I'm like, I'm like a legit Texan. You say, no way, dude. Yeah, my great-grandfather moved to Oregon in the 1880s and started at a sawmill, so you can tell what kind of a tree hugger I am. I hug the ones that are down on the ground. And, but my second cousin, four times removed, Jonathan Lindley, died at the Alamo so you know I think they should have given me my property but uh but uh I, I love it. I I was talking with some guys in the in the green room which happens to be green I thought that was interesting and uh um and uh, and he and he says well uh you know uh I just wanted to apologize for killing your uh you know our people killed your second cousin four times removed and then I, I I retaliated, and I said Santa Ana lover, so, uh, so, anyway, I just we had a little bit of a you know showdown there, but it, it all worked out. So there's peace. There's peace here now. So, anyway, I'm, I've come to preach to you about Jesus and uh, and and goof off just a bit, because hey, you know it's a long day to not goof off. So uh, I wanna I wanna get into a scripture this morning that I love. Because I like to find what appears to be bad news and find the good news. Because the, the gospel is good news. William Tyndale was, treat, uh, was preaching back in 1535 and he came up with a definition uh, for uh, the word gospel. He was the first person to use the word gospel As to describe the the, uh, concept of the good news. And he says, the gospel is the good, glad, merry news that makes a heart to sing and dance and leap for joy. And uh, so when you went to uh, the market, you would say back in 1535, oh, honey, I went to the market and I sold a pig and I got five pennies for the pig. Is that not gospel? (laughs) So that's what gospel is. It's good news. It's good, glad, merry news that makes your heart to sing and dance and leap for joy. So, you know, I, I believe this. I'm not, a, I'm not a strong Christian. I'll just say it that way. And you might say, whoa, Darren, that's, you're scaring me. You're standing on the platform. You should be a strong Christian. I believe that the term strong Christian is actually kind of an oxymoron because uh, Jesus hadn't come for the strong. He came for the weak. He he said he came to choose the things that are not to confound the things that are. And I believe that any strength that I have comes because Jesus is pouring his strength into me. That by myself I can do nothing but Christ in me can do all things. And so one of the things I feel that, you know, I grew up in kind of this, what I would call Boy Scout Christianity, where it was about do your honor, do your duty, do your best for God and country and, you know, make it happen, brother. And, uh, and so, you know, I tried and I tried and I tried and I failed and I failed and I failed. And, uh, and I was a pretty benign kid, you know. I mean, I wasn't even a rebel rouser. I didn't smoke pot or, you know, do nasty stuff. And, and, but I had, I just couldn't be a great Christian. One day I, I found out something. That being a Christian isn't about you being strong, it's about him being strong. And when we surrender to him, he pours his life into us and pours his goodness into us. So I want to take a look at some scripture today. In Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 25, it says this, uh, or excuse me, Luke 14, 25, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a weird sentence. Last I checked, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Isn't that right? Love your enemy, but hate your mom and dad. That's kind of strange. But, you know, in biblical times, there was this idea that your, your identity came completely from your family. Jesus was a carpenter because his father was a carpenter, Joseph. And so, so much of your identity and your strength and your resources came from your family identity. And there was an idea that you could do something because you were part of a strong family. And uh, it's a very common thing. I think we still feel that way uh, today. Today. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What he's really saying is he's saying that these people are of no value to you in getting where you're trying to go. I read a story a while back about this family and they were doing this big worldwide cruise in their sailboat. And off the coast of Chile, they got torpedoed by whales, literally. Sunk their boat, they moved into their life raft, and they were towing a little dinghy behind them in this life raft, and uh, after a while, just laying in this life raft for about two months, they just wore all the rubber off the life raft, and it started leaking. So they're pumping it up every couple hours, trying to get the life back into the life raft, And after a while, they finally just realized this life raft is not getting the job done, so we have to move into the dinghy. So they move into this little teeny tiny dinghy, and the life raft, they watched as it just continued to deflate and then finally just sunk beneath the waves. They came to hate the life raft, but not in the sense of, I hate you, you stupid life raft. It was more of, this life raft is useless, It has no value. There's an old English uh, use of the word hate that doesn't mean to loathe. It doesn't mean to, man, I hate you. It means to find something of no value. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life, they are of no value to you in gaining eternal life. There's no value in it. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I've heard a lot of people use this phrase. Well, time to take up your cross, brother. Time to take up your cross. And that idea is this idea of strength. Well, you know, your, your, your family strength is not enough. But neither is your strength enough. You're not going to be able to carry the cross. In fact, what it means to take up your cross is something very, very different than what I think we've we think it means. To take up your cross, we're going to get to that in a second, means something very different. So then he goes into this amazing scripture about counting the cost. I don't know if you've heard that scripture. I'm sure you have. Uh, you got to count the cost. And all of my life I grew up hearing about this idea of counting the cost. And it's like, well, didn't you count the cost? <laughs> Stupid. Man, no wonder you failed. You didn't count the cost, idiot. So Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. I love you, Jeremy. You're doing my heart good right now. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, you're not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a de- delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. So <clears throat> I want to take a look at this passage here of counting the cost. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Well, in the biblical uh, scenario, there's basically three kinds of towers. The first tower would be a tower that you would erect in a vineyard. And you would build this tower and you'd put a guy on watch and he's got a bow and an arrow and you're looking for little foxes that would come in and they would eat the grapes. And it's the little foxes that would come and spoil the vines. You've heard that phrase. And so they would stand up there and they would just look down the rows of these, the vineyard. They see a fox, they got a little fox pelt now. Okay, so that was the purpose of that tower. Another tower would be the ziggurat. A ziggurat was like what the Tower of Babel was. And it was not a small project. It was the project of nations. So when Babel built this tower, it was to get to God. It was an attempt to reach God. That's why they built this tower. And uh, so fantastic cost to a ziggurat. And the third tower would be the kind of a tower that you'd have in a castle. Uh, it would be like a castle keep. It would be the thing that would be the safe place where you could run and hide when your enemy comes to you. So the picture really, most likely, that this tower is referring to is the picture of a tower as a picture of salvation. This is a place where you go to get saved. Okay? So when you you got an enemy coming, he's going to kill you, and you need a tower, you need to escape, you run to the tower, man, and that will save you. I was in Scotland here a few years ago, and I went to this place uh, called Finlader Castle. And it was such an awesome place. It was built on this cape, and a, a cape... Being in Texas, you probably all don't know what capes are. But uh, in Oregon, on the Oregon coast, we have these things called capes. And they're where this piece of land will just stick out like this. It's just, you got the shoreline and it's a very narrow piece of land. And this piece of land walking out to the cape was uh, literally just the width one person could walk. And you get out to this, this cape and it opened up a little bit. And there they had built their castle. And you could feel the fear out there. Because the slots in the castle were like real thin slots. And so the archer would stand there. And inside the castle, the walls are tapered like this. So the archer can go here or he can go here. But the slot's still only about two inches wide. And it looked down onto this little harbor where they had uh, made it so that they could come and approach the castle. Anybody who comes in, they completely have that harbor covered. There's no way anybody's going to get there. You go into a castle because you have people that are trying to kill you. They're trying to destroy you, cut your heads off, impale you, and throw you off a cliff. That's what they're really seriously interested in doing. So you need a castle. You need a tower to save you. For if you lay the foundation, and so, so if you're going to build one things things, you need to count the cost, see if you have enough money to complete it. Because if you don't, and you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, you will look so stupid. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of the weirder sentences of life. That's like saying, this bad guy came into my house, and I pulled out my gun, and he was, you know, beating my wife with a baseball bat, and I pulled my gun out, and I started shooting him, and I ran out of bullets. I felt so stupid. That's kind of a weird sentence, isn't it? You're fighting for your life. When do you say somebody is stupid because they're fighting for their life, but they don't have enough resources to win? You might say it's tragic, but you wouldn't say they're stupid or ridicule them. For if you lay the foundation, you're not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you. But you know, in... In the religious world, when people fall short, they are very frequently ridiculed, aren't they? Very frequently. You know, I I heard about a guy who was sitting in a bar and and somebody was, uh, there were two guys talking. And this guy says, you know, I tried to be a Christian. I just can't do it. So that's why I'm here. Because I just can't do it. And I... I just drink now because I just can't do it. And the guy next to him is probably going, oh, yeah, huh? Yeah, well, I, understand. Well, I, I tried that religion thing, too. It didn't work for me either. I, I can't do it. I'm not a good enough person to be, be, do that kind of stuff. What do they say? They're saying, I looked at this cost, and I can't pay the price, and I can't do it. But there's a tragic misunderstanding there, Yes. a very tragic misunderstanding And people will say about this person, this person began to build and was not able to finish it. And then in verse 31, we now have a parallel passage to the first. And this is to make the same statement, but using a different illustration. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't the first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000 men? Now, last I checked, that's a pretty tough scenario. you got 10,000, he's got 20,000. You're in trouble, brother. Will he not first sit down and see, consider whether he's able with these 10,000? So here's what it's going to take, guys. We're going to have to get in there we're going to have to fight. And in order to achieve mutually assured destruction also known as mad, every one of you are gonna have to kill two of them before you can get killed. (laughs) You ready for this? And then there will be nobody when it's all over. That's what it's gonna take. Now, logistically, that's not likely. Now, the scripture here does not offer us any suppositions like they had better field position or they had you know, more motivated fighters or they had better weapons. There's nothing indicating that at all. All we have here is a real uh, a scary situation. There's 20,000 of them, there's 10,000 of us. It's not looking good. He says this, if he's, if he's not able... If he's not able, now, when has if he's not able been an option when you're fighting for your life? If you're fighting for your life, you just fight for your life and you hope it's enough. Isn't that right? You don't quit because you don't think you're able. Well, I guess I'm not going to make it, so let's just cut it short. You know, Harry Carrie. <laughs> if he's not able, there's such a fascinating sequitur here. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off And he will ask for terms of peace. Okay, now that brings us to the next question. Who are we fighting for what? Are we fighting for our life? And who are we fighting for? He says, he will ask for terms of peace. Now, the last I checked, our intent is not to fight God. Our intent is to fight Satan, right? But not God. So, we got a problem here. 20,000 versus 10. What are we going to do about it? Well, it might be wise to send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. Well, if we're fighting Satan, can you get peace from Satan under any circumstance? Has anybody in this room, like me, ever surrendered to the devil for some period of time? Surrendered to a temptation, surrendered to a lie, surrendered to your anger, surrendered to your bitterness, surrendered to the stupid, evil things that Satan has offered us, we all have. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us have surrendered to Satan on numerous occasions. Did it ever give you peace? No, it doesn't give you any peace. So if you're not able to win this battle, you might want to find out what the terms of surrender are so you can get peace. Well, if it's peace, it's not the devil that we're fighting. Well, but who are we fighting? This person is going to have some demands for peace. He's going to want you to surrender. He's going to want you to lay your arms down and throw your hands up and say, I give up. I am yours. And when you do that, you know what He's going to do? He's going to give you peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that boggles your mind and defies your circumstances. Peace that will sustain you and heal you and deliver you and make everything new. So who are we fighting? You mean we're doing everything in our power to get peace but the ticket isn't in your strength it's in surrender so why do you count the cost why would you count the cost because every person is trying to get peace They're trying to get love and joy and satisfaction. I know this sounds really weird, but even psycho psychopaths are trying to find something that's going to give them pleasure. And they're doing everything in their strength, everything in their power, using all their cleverness and conniving and every single resource they have. They're using their father and their mother and their wife and their children. They're using all of their money. They're using all of their energy. They're using all of their suave coolness. They're trying to buy a prettier car to get a prettier girl because they think if they can do that, then they're going to feel good. But you can't quite swing it. You need to count the cost Because when you understand what the cost is, you will know yourself better. You don't have what it takes. You don't count the cost so that you can pay the price, you count the cost so that you know you can't pay the price. You count the cost so that you are not deluded into thinking that somehow you can solve your own problems and heal yourself and bring all this peace into your own heart, (coughs) you are utterly unable to make this happen. That's why we count the cost. But when we count the cost, we discover something quite startling. Oh my God goodness, I can't do this. Oh my goodness, I can't heal my marriage. Oh my goodness, I can't take away this craving for alcohol. Oh my goodness, I can't deliver myself from the bitterness and the anger and the hatred and the resentment. I can't heal myself from the angry, mean, hateful words that my father spoke to me. I can't heal myself from the abuse of the person (coughs) who wounded me so deeply. I can't do it! I can't get into the tower I can't even begin to build the tower. I can't fight this battle. And he starts off this passage with the solution. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He says, if anyone does, comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and brothers, children, sisters, yes, even their own life, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Where did Jesus carry his cross? He carried his cross to the place where he would be executed. You don't carry a cross because it looks cool. You don't carry a cross to demonstrate how deeply devoted you are to Christ. You carry a cross to die on. And the reason you count the cost is because you come to the utter end of yourself. I've watched several people die being in ministry. You, you see it once in a while. And there's this amazing moment when that very last breath is exhaled from their body. And their chest doesn't rise again. And the stillness that comes is unlike any other stillness. It is the absolute end of that person's energy. They cannot save themselves. The reason we take up our cross is because Jesus wants us to do something. Pastor Scott, Darren, what's your what's your scripture? for the Sunday, I said, John 6, 29. What's your title? Doing the real work. Doing the real work. John 6, the people were following Jesus. And they're, he had just fed the 5,000. That was kind of cool, free food. <laughs> and they're thinking, you know, we should just go on the road and RV with Christ. <laughs> Let's full time it, and they're following around and they're thinking, okay, he's gonna make some cookies pretty quick. I'm sure, because he does it so easy and so good. He's able to feed five thousand plus the women and children. Dude's got skills, and they're thinking, man, we're gonna get some here so quick. After a while, he started to go impatient. He said, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, what must we do to do the works God requires? Because they're thinking, you know, obviously that he wants us to do something. When we do that thing, then he's going to feed us. Sir, what must we do to do the works God requires? Because we would really love some free food. And Jesus says this, the work. Sir, what must we do to do the works, plural? And he says, the work, singular. The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. The ultimate act of believing is when you allow yourself to die in his arms. I remember when I was doing youth camps and youth pastoring and stuff, we did those trust falls. That is actually one of the best illustrations ever, as long as you don't have some nasty pranking people on the catching end. <clears throat> but this idea of just you'd stand them up on a table and you have people, and they're way down here. You get, you know, six big guys, and they've got their Christmas. and they're, they're, okay, whenever you want. This person's blindfolded and they just go, uh, and they fall into the arms of those people and they're fine. And you know, Christianity is the ultimate trust (laughs) fall. You recognize I am in a situation that is so bad that I can never save myself. I can't build a tower. I can't win the war. So I'm gonna go to Jesus and I am just gonna surrender. I don't even really know what that means, except I'm gonna throw my hands up in the air and say, Jesus, if you don't catch me, I will splatter like a ripe cantaloupe. And then he comes and he saves you and he heals you and he delivers you. But that resurrection occurs after the cross. Taking up your cross means embracing all of your weakness. Is it scary? No kidding. Jesus Himself said, "Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from me." Not once, but three times. Father, uh, just just saying, if if this isn't Your will, we can probably do something else. <laughs> um. Yeah, Father. Nevertheless, not my will, Your 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 will. He's sweating as though great drops of blood, but he takes up his cross, and three days later. He's raised from the dead. You don't count the cost so you can pay the price. You count the cost so that you know you can't pay the price and that only he can raise you from the dead. If he's not able to win 10,000 versus 20,000, Will he not send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace? And I want to tell you, my friend, maybe you're sitting here today and you're looking at your destruction. You're looking at your certain death and you cannot figure out what to do. I understand. I can really relate. Two years ago, I went through the darkest day of my life on Mother's Day 2020. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible day. I found out that my wife had been having an affair for 16 years, and everything that I thought was my future and my life and my wife I understand what it's like to know that you don't have what it takes to build the tower or to win the battle. Maybe you're sitting here and you found out you got cancer or your child has a disease or your marriage just blew up and you can't even begin to imagine how you could ever make it. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Being a disciple isn't about you being the best you be can be. It's about you coming and surrendering and saying, I'll never be enough. That's why I say the term strong Christian is kind of oxymoronic. I understand what people mean when they say that. I'm not trying to pick a fight, but it's kind of the wrong phrase. You know what I mean? Because all I can tell you is that he is strong. I'm weak and he is strong. And then he finishes this. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In biblical times, when they would, and you guys can go ahead, Josh, whenever you're ready. In biblical times, the way they got salts, they would go to Dead Sea, take a bunch of water out, pour it in these basins, let it evaporate. Well, you got salt for sure, But you got a whole lot more than salt. You got every mineral that was in the Dead Sea. And we're all now into sea salt, right? It's because it's better somehow. It's got minerals and stuff. But the part of the salt, the salty part of the salt, (laughs) of this mineral compilation, the salt is very transient. In other words, if you have water and you run it through there, you can wash the salt out of the minerals that remain, and it will lose its saltiness. He says, you're salt. You are salt. Well, why are you salt? You are salt for the same reason that that mineral that they called salt was salt. How can salt lose its saltiness? Well, it's more than salt. And what happens is Jesus says, hey, here's your problem. You got a problem you can't fix. So come to me, surrender, and I will come and be in you which you cannot be of yourself. And when I do, I will preserve you. I will cleanse you. I will heal you. I will strengthen you. All these things that salt does for us. Christ in us is the saltiness. It's Christ in us that is the saltiness. And then it says, it's not fit for anything. You can't throw it on the soil, you can't. And they would use it for weed control. If you don't put too much on, you can kill off the surface weeds and you can use that uh, to help control the weeds and, and, and throw it on the manure pile. Manure carries a lot of seeds in it. You throw some salt, it's not good enough to eat, but it's good enough to kill the weeds on the salt pile, on the manure pile, and you throw it on the manure pile and it knocks the weeds down so when you sow it into the field, you're not sowing a bunch of weeds into your field. And Jesus is saying, hey, gotta be some salt in us. And he is Jesus. And so I wanna say to you, my friend, if you're dying, if you don't have the power to build the tower, if you don't have the strength to win the war, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus today and ask for his terms of peace. I'll tell you what the terms are total, complete surrender. Just to say, hey Jesus, what you do in me, what I cannot do in me. If you're needing a tower today that you cannot afford, you've been trying to fight a battle for peace that you cannot win. He's here right now. Will you surrender? It would be so wise. And then he's going to fill you with life and you'll become salty. Let's bow our heads and pray. Beautiful Jesus, we come to you today in our weakness. We come to you today exactly as we are. Life hands us some weird stuff. Stuff we never imagined. Stuff that we couldn't begin to believe whatever happened to us. Sometimes it does. We come to you today, Jesus, and we just say, hey, Lord, you're the strong tower. We can't build it but we can run to you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. So today we run to you for you to save us. Father, I pray for my friends who are sitting here. If you need a tower today, would you just raise your hand? If you need, a, 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 some, you need, you need the Lord to save you from something, maybe, maybe you're not talking about eternity like hell and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's just life or maybe it is hell. Maybe you don't know God. Here's how you get there. Send a delegation while it's a long way off and ask for terms of peace and surrender. I'm gonna pray with you right now. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would grace us to surrender so that you can raise us from the dead and pour the life into us that we could never have in ourselves. We need you. We want you. We love you. We believe in you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. As Josh begins to lead in worship here, I'll be down here if any of the elders would like to join up here for just a pray. If you need some prayer, I'd love to pray with you. And I'm gonna ask Jesus just to do good things in your life. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full-service replays, visit us online at hcfburnit.org. God bless and have a great week.